My name is Jason Doldine, and I'm the host of Reaching Roots, a podcast with a goal to make life easier for parents and families so they can reach further. We're talking to people who inspire us with their journey, tell us about the problems they are solving, and provide us insight that helps us and our children learn and grow. Why is reading so important for your kids? Reading for pleasure can benefit a child's education, social, and cognitive development, their well-being, and their mental health. When children read, it provides them with a deep understanding about their world and fills them with knowledge that they use to make sense of what they see, hear, and experience. A book can take kids anywhere, to a different city, country, or an alternate world, widening their imagination and sparking creativity. It allows children to develop empathy through seeing the lives of other characters and how they are feeling. In addition, reading helps create a larger vocabulary, improve academic performance, and increase self-confidence. Alison McDonald is a teacher, author, and the founder of the popular early childhood education blog, No Time for Flashcards. She is passionate about early childhood education and says, whether in a classroom or family room, I want to help adults make learning fun and meaningful for the children they care for. Allison co-wrote the book, Raising a Rockstar Reader, as a must-have parent's guide to raise lifelong learners and readers. She followed this with the book, Setting the Stage for Rockstar Readers, as an important resource for teachers in daycare, preschool, and kindergarten, explaining the whys and hows of early literacy to help teachers better develop young readers. In this episode, Allison discusses the importance of reading early and provides us with easy to implement tips and activities to create a literate environment and build your child's early reading and writing skills. Allison holds bachelor's degrees in history and elementary education and a master's degree in early childhood and family development. When she is not teaching, speaking to groups about teaching or writing about teaching, she is probably running or baking. Allison lives on Bainbridge Island, Washington, with her husband, tween and teen and a very clingy puppy. And welcome, Allison. Thank you. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Good stuff. So Allison, why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to uh, doing No Time with Flashcards? Do you know what? It was really, so you have to go way back. So I'm Canadian and I, um, Yeah, and I uh, met a boy from the States. And so I ended up moving to the States and he happened to be in the Air Force. And so I knew I wasn't going to get a teaching certificate in Missouri where we were. So instead I started teaching preschool and I fell in love. And so what happened next was We moved again so he could go to business school. I ended up being a director of a preschool, which I didn't love, and then went back into the classroom again and then got pregnant with my now 14-year-old son. And as most people in early childhood will tell you, it is not hard to make the decision to stay home if you can because you are paying more for daycare than you are making teaching. So... I was forced to stay home basically with my young son who is now not so young and I missed the classroom and I had a lot of friends with kids 
a little bit older than me and that were asking for things and how to prepare their children for kindergarten, how to prepare their kids for this or that, or their child is asking to learn to read or, and so I got really sick of writing emails, really long emails. And I decided to put it in a blog and say, okay, here are the things that you should be doing. Now, the name is a nod to the fact that at that time, it was really big where things like your baby can read, teach your baby to read right. and um, baby Einstein. And both of those tended to have a lot of flashcards. And there was a book, there is a book called Einstein Never Used Flashcards. And it was talking about why that is inappropriate. And so I never expected my blog to be read by anyone that wasn't my friends at that time. Yeah. And so I just, I had really like kind of snide remark, uh, like titles. And of course, no time for flashcards was just my thing. Like dudes, put the flashcards down. That's not the way to do it. So that's how it started. And um, it kind of snowballed from there. All oh, right on. So why don't, why don't we go into that a little bit? So why is, why are flashcards not the right thing? So flashcards are fantastic for remembering facts that just float in the air by themselves. So things like, like I was in a sorority in college and we had to memorize the Greek alphabet. Well, guess what? I will never have to use that. I definitely don't use formulas. I don't need to know any Greek letters except for, for an exam at age like 20 to become this sorority sister. So it's great for that. If you just need to practice facts like math facts, when you're in fourth, third grade, fourth grade, and you just have to practice those multiplication tables, yeah. flashcards are great. But they're not going to make a meaningful connection to information in your brain. They are simply going to recall the information, which is what we want for multiplication tables. Right. But it's not what we want for actual learning. Yeah, very interesting. So let's step back a little bit. Why don't you tell us about sort of like, you know, reading? I mean, why is reading important? So reading is, is fundamental. Well, that's actually a, a organization. Reading is fundamental, but reading is fundamental because while in early years we focus on reading and learning to read, really after that, it becomes a vehicle for learning. There's not much learning you can do, especially in an academic sense, yeah. without reading. And we depend on it for everything. We depend on it for every bit of communication. And so learning to read and having the foundations for learning to read at a young age is so important because we want our students and our children to think of themselves as readers right away because they are going to be readers for the rest of their lives and not just reading for fun. I mean, literally you need to read for everything. Yeah, so how young, how young should you know, kids be starting to read? Because I mean, you know, they'll go to school, they'll learn eventually how to read, right? So. Uh, what's the connection of, of needing them to read early? Well, I think really what that, the answer to that question is that we, especially parents that don't have an education background, they see learning to read as this magical system. That's not what learning to read is. The very first time that you spoke to your baby, you were teaching them to read. Right. Literacy is a developmental experience. Now, a lot of people also think that if you just throw a kid in a room with a bunch of books, they're gonna to learn to read. And that's not true. Reading takes explicit steps. Absolutely, it takes explicit instructions. That's why we've got issues with people who do grow up and never learn to read. Right. But 
it's not this magic wand that kindergarten and first grade teachers have. It's something we can all do with speaking to our children, singing with our children, reading with our children. They are getting explicit instruction when we do that. We don't have to do um, a systemic approach, especially right. not in the early years. Once they get to school, then our job is to support their formal educators as they do that. But before that, or when they're in preschool or daycare, there's so many things parents can do that will be, I like to think of it as a tower. Right. The child is going to build the tower of learning to read, but our job is to be the scaffold and to help them gather all those blocks, make sure they've got the really strong blocks on the bottom so the tower doesn't topple. Right, right. So should we be worried if our kids are not reading when they're three or four? Like, No, no you shouldn't be worried and you shouldn't be pushing. <clears throat> Absolutely not. No, there are children that will be reading at four. Both of my kids read at four. Right. But that was because they had this crazy rich environment. Both my husband and I are pretty well educated. So there's not a lot of, you know, blocks missing there. We speak to our children constantly. I had them in the front pack with me, the ergo. And people thought it was crazy that I was talking to my kids. I talked <laughs> to my dog that much too. So there's all these things that we can do. But do you know what? If my kids hadn't been reading at four or five or six, I wouldn't have been worried yet. Now, there's a lot of pressure on kindergartners to be reading because in the States, the common core can be, uh, curriculum can be um, interpreted as they need to be reading in kindergarten. And there are going to be lots of children who are not ready to read in their kindergarten year, especially if they start kindergarten right at five. Right. So, no, parents should be looking at their child, not looking at the kids around them, not looking at, you know, specifically looking at checklists. Those checklists are fantastic to really see if your child's behind or if there's really something wrong. But so many parents get so hung up on every single little thing. And the thing is, is that children are going to develop in a really kind of, oh, what is the word I'm, predictable, in a predictable order, but yeah. they're going to be on their own timeline. So no, parents should not be, no three-year-old needs to read. If your three-year-old happens to be really advanced, hooray, but no three-year-old needs to read. I am definitely not teaching my three and four-year-olds to read. I am letting them play with letters and we're speaking a lot and we're singing and we're rhyming, but we're not sitting down and having a literacy lesson. Got it. So, so what should parents be doing um, to kind of get their children on this journey of reading? So parents should be having their house filled with books if they can. Whatever's in your budget, max that budget out. They okay. should be making time to read every single day. So if you have no time at all, except for two minutes, find the shortest book possible and read it to your child. You should be reading with your kids every day. I don't like saying you should, and I know every parent, especially right now with the pandemic, things are crazy. But if you have two minutes, read with your child. Um, you should be speaking with them, not at them. So conversations are so important. Yeah. You don't need to talk down to your children. They will learn vocabulary, which will help them read when they're ready. Because if they've heard that word before, they have context and that will help them. You should be singing with them if you can. 
And absolutely try and play with letters. If you can get magnetic letters, if you can get letter cookie cutters, just bring letters into the toys that you have as well. Right. But you don't need to be worried about a really systemic approach in the early years. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, you know, you wrote this book, um, Raising a Rockstar Reader. Um, tell us about kind of, um, you know, what, what was the trigger that got you kind of um, in that, uh, moving in that direction? And what does that book cover? So the trigger was my co-author who said, hey, Allie, we're writing a book. <laughs> so Amy Mascot from teachmama.com is a dear friend. And literally that was the trigger. So she, I never wanted to write a book because I'm not, I don't, writing is hard for me. Right. And um, teaching is not, but writing is. And uh, Amy was like, nope, we're going to. We had been writing a um, blog for Scholastic Parents called Raising Readers. And she had just kind of decided we were going to write a book and started talking to different editors at Scholastic. And so, um, yeah, a lot of people were like, tell me how you got to do that. And I was like, well, it really was a phone call saying we are. <laughs> well, so um, sometimes a little nudge by friends is a good thing. Yes. And, and Amy is wonderful at that. So um, she ha is a reading specialist for elementary. And so together we wrote this book and we have been writing, we actually met, uh, oh gosh, probably 13 years ago on a phone call with Hooked on Phonics. So we have been in the space of early literacy and that's what I focused on in my B.Ed. was early literacy. So really, what, how it evolved though, is that we really wanted to make it easy. Like this is a simple book that will help busy parents. We didn't want to help the parents that have, not that we don't want to help all parents, but it wasn't for the parents that have a ton of time to research and dive in. It was for the parents that want to do something, but only have a few minutes right. to decide what they're going to do. And so the book really covers, I know that it's sometimes said on Amazon and a few other online that it's for kids up to fifth grade. It is not. It is really, it's a great baby shower gift. It's okay. really for parents of very little children to take you up to kind of first, second grade. Okay. Because it helps you realize the benefits. So it's 75 different things for you to do. And there's book lists. There is, um, there are simple activities, how to use those magnetic letters to do something fun. What to do when your child is not sitting for books. It's all of those, what we consider basic things, yeah. but it's laid out for any parent to read. Right. Maybe you can kind of elaborate a little bit about uh, what do we do when kids don't actually want to read? Because I'm sure a lot of parents go through that, right? Like you start reading and the kids run off. Um, <laughs> I think, Really, my biggest tip is this happens, especially with toddlers. So I just spent the last, what, six, seven years teaching two and a half to three-year-olds. And this age group, they need to move their bodies. So we need to find times when they're already still. If you say to them, hey, you know, come read a book with me. And they're like, little, 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 off they go. Don't fight it. You don't want book to be force. You want book to be fun. Right. So, Things like, when are they already buckled in somewhere? When are they already contained, but you're not containing them for the book? So my kids sat in a booster that had clips for 
snack time, for breakfast, for dinner. Those yeah. are great times to read a book. What about when they're in the bath? Read a book in the bath. Right. I live on an island. So one place where kids would be buckled in all the time is waiting for the ferry. We'd always have to drive there and wait. And you would not unbuckle your toddler or preschooler. Right, right. Grab a book. So really, it's just think outside of the, I have to do it here. No, you don't. You can do it another time. Yeah. And I really encourage parents to read at night because no matter what your schedule is, your kid goes to sleep yep. every night. You know, yeah. It doesn't feel like they always do, or maybe they don't stay asleep, but they have bedtime every night. And if you read every night at bedtime, you are setting that um, routine in place. Right. And you will always have that. Sometimes maybe you read five books. Sometimes maybe you read one and yeah. you skip some of the pages in that one, but you read every night. And that sets in their mind that reading is something you do every day. Right. Just, it's a given. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. You know, as you were talking about that, I remember, you know, reading to our kids when we were, when they were, when they were small and uh, doing it when they were eating. And it's actually a good way to keep them eating too. <laughs> it totally is. Yep, that's what we do it. And at preschool, when I taught uh, toddlers many years ago in Seattle, yeah. We would read a short story at circle time, but a much longer one at snack time as they were right. down and eating. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I, I guess there's a whole other sort of uh, uh, issue around distracted eating and, you know, I don't know where that plays in, but maybe that's a different topic altogether. Yeah. That's not my lane. I'm not going <laughs> to worry about that. <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, Allison, you're doing, um, you wrote this book and then you kind of followed it up with uh, a second book um, for teachers. Uh, what, were, what was kind of the, um, uh, the focus on that one then? I think one of the things was that in that time, both my co-author and I went back to school. Like we went back to teaching in a classroom. Right. And our focus went from speaking very much to parents to also speaking to teachers again. Right. And also, as I was writing that book, I was finishing my master's. So that was a chance to really use our voice for teachers and my now I spend most of my time speaking to teachers not so much parents anymore okay. yeah. and um that's that's my heart I like parents but with parents I'm kind of like hey guys we're all in this together and with teachers I'm like hey I I really know about this let me share this with you let me make your day at school easier right. and um I absolutely love I'm really proud of our second book not that I'm not proud of our first but our second book is really um, it's more my baby being that it's an early class, early childhood classroom book. Right, right. And, um, it really incorporates and brings in a lot of my teaching philosophies, not just stuff to break it down for parents, but break right. it down for the early childhood teacher who quite often doesn't necessarily have formal training in early childhood. Yeah. Or, or even, you know, how to teach kids how to read, right? Um, so can you touch upon kind of, are there, are there like one or two things that you feel like, uh, you know, teachers could really benefit from if they sort of dug deep on in terms of the learning part of it, learning to teach part of it? I think one of the things is really, really to look at your individual student. If you slow down and observe your students, you can truly see where they are and what they need next. And I think so often we're so busy about getting things done and making things that look cute to send home. And if we actually just watch our student and see what they need, 
um, we will have a lot more of an opportunity to help them get there. So I think observing and really what we call um, authentic assessment, when we're watching really how they're doing stuff, not just how they do on a formal assessment. So if we yeah. gave them like all the ABCs and said, okay, tell us what you know. Instead, you're watching how they play and how they're using everything together. Um, I think that's it. But I could like go on about this for like three hours of like, yeah. okay, if you're watching a child do this, then you want to do this and this, this. I get so deep into each one of my students of what they need. And we just started in person again. And I'm just, my husband is no doubt very bored hearing about how <laughs> this and their grip is like this. So we're going to do this. And yes, I get you know, it. It's, it's so interesting because when, when you're talking about that, I mean, you know, it kind of makes me think as a parent and, and, you know, I've heard other parents say where, you know, there are, there are people in a classroom that are at different levels, right? And let's just take reading. I mean, this, this continues with, with all sorts of other things um, and academic sort of um, uh, subjects as, as time goes by, but let's just take reading, right? I mean, and at that age where, where you're three or four years old and you put your, your son or your daughter into a classroom and maybe your son or daughter is actually reading well or not reading or not, or the opposite of it, right? Pa parents are usually concerned about how their child is going to evolve within a classroom uh, and you know if if the kid's doing really well right now they're worried that they're going to regress and if the kid's not doing really well they're worried that they're not going to get enough attention so what's your sense in terms of like you know what what do you tell teachers um in a situation like this when a parent is concerned about where their child is kind of ranking wise yeah. well, I would... how do they really manage the classroom to kind of move all these children forward because you know what you mentioned is you know, pay attention to each uh, and every child, right? And where they are. That's hard to do, right? When you've got a class of like 20, 30, 40 people, wherever it is. Well, first of all, I would pray that there are no 30 or 40. There shouldn't even be 20 at this age. But I would say the most useful tool that a teacher has to differentiate lessons yeah. is play. And that's what I tell teachers when I give presentations about early childhood is the best tool you have is play because every child will work at their highest level when they are playing. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, no, when I play, well, no, sitting and watching trash TV is not playing <laughs> as an adult. Um, and children will, they will use their highest level of thinking. They will use their highest level of ability, whether it's vocabulary or pretend play when they are playing. And so first of all, the best way to differentiate is to make sure there's plenty of play so that you can go and pay attention to each child. If all you're doing is set group activities where people sitting in chairs and tables, yeah. you're not going to be able to do that. Right. You have to have an ample amount of play. The next thing is you have to really get to know your students. You have to know, can they do this? Or are they having a bad day? Because at, three-year-old with a bad day is going to be a three-year-old that is nowhere near their highest ability. Sure. Yeah. So that, the other thing is you have to plan out activities that are flexible, that have different levels of understanding. So things like one of my favorite things to do with really little ones is to have a rain. I love rainbows, have a rainbow and have um, magnetic letters like these. Yep. And all they're doing is matching up the colors. So for some children, it's going to be color matching. Yep. But 
for some children, they're going to say, look, I'm putting the T up. Okay. And by being adjacent to them and just narrating, yeah. I found a purple N. I'm going to put a purple N up. Look, a lowercase E. It's yellow. Just narrating, not saying, do you know what letter this is? Like, we don't have to quiz them all the time. Yeah. Just by narrating, they're going to start narrating too. Or they might say, Miss Allie, what color is this? And I'll say, oh, it's green. Do you know what? I have a T in my middle name. You are scaffolding their learning at various yeah. levels. So by having a lot of free choice activities and making sure that you meet up with, and you're not going to be able to meet up with every student, and then noting what they've done. And I love post-it notes for observation. Just write down like, Allison, trouble with G. Yeah. Need to know. Like she knows all her letters, but she's having trouble with G. Not a problem. Margot, she's got everything. She's having trouble writing a T. Yeah. Not a problem. And then you can go back and see. But generally speaking, the most important thing in an early childhood classroom is to provide this buffet of learning, this buffet of letters and words and rhymes and songs, and really getting their social down. Because when they get to kindergarten, they're not gonna have time to focus on the social emotional. They should, but they don't. Right. And if we can help that in early childhood, if that, because that's part of the learning foundation. A lot of people are like, oh, they're just playing. Whoa, no, no, no. That play is vital because that play will give them all the skills they need to not be playing next year. Right. Just that, that developmentally, they should be. But that's a whole nother podcast. Right, right, right. That's so interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, the point that really struck me here is that, uh, you know, you're kind of automating you're automating kids to do work. And if that work is play, then they're going to do it by themselves as opposed to you pushing them. And then yep. you just got to basically, you know, assess it. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you can see so much. I mean, when they're playing things like playing pizza parlor, my students last week were playing pizza parlor right. and I can say, Hey, do you guys want a dry erase board for me? Do you want a dry erase board for taking orders? And now, yeah, yeah. Now they're writing. Now they're, I'm not worried about writing the letters. I just want them using the proper grip. So a lot of people think of young children as just dumb, big kids. And yeah. that's not it at all. We meet them where they are. And it is so important to build these foundations in a strong, appropriate way. And that's how we do it. That's excellent. So these are such valuable tips. And, you know, we, we hope all, all, all our kids are exposed to teachers like that. Well, hopefully all of them love teaching as much as I do. I'm ridiculously, oh, I love it so much. Absolutely. I can hear it in your voice. It's great. Uh, so Ali, tell me about, um, you know, you wrote, you wrote these two books. How has all this kind of changed you? I mean, have you kind of gone through some sort of transformation through, you know, writing all these books and talking to all these teachers? I don't think so at all, honestly. I think that one of the things that um, I think, Probably the only way that it has changed me other than more um, airline miles, which is great because I love to travel, is that it really helps me see the disparity in training for early childhood teachers. So when I think about, I want to go back and get my doctorate. And when I think about what I want to do with it yep. is I really want to focus on professional development. So because early childhood is sometimes at public, 
Sometimes it's private. I teach in a church at a church school. Right. Um, sometimes there are, you know, in-home daycares. I want all of those teachers to get the same access to professional development because right. this is a profession, but we're not going to be seen as one until we are all trained at a certain level. And that doesn't mean university degrees, but it does mean accessible and great professional development. And so I think going around, that's what I see. And I just see, so I always leave speaking engagements just energized because teachers, they do love to teach as much as I do. Yeah. And when I was a daycare um, center director, I, I hated it because I hated managing adults. Right. And those, there's just, there's so much opportunity for really fantastic early childhood. And it matters what we can get into the hands of the teachers, what information. You don't last in a preschool classroom or a daycare if you don't love kids. Like you don't. Right. You're handing in your, you know, resignation right away. A certain kind and, of person. Oh, it is. Exactly. And, um, and all of those people deserve to have really fantastic information at their fingertips. So that is kind of, if it's changed me, it's fueled my desire to really make sure that all these people that love teaching also have all the information they need to teach these students really well. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a big problem everywhere, right? Cause you, you, there are, especially now, I mean, there's daycares and pandemic pods and all sorts of stuff that have popped up all over the place. And no. some of them are not really that formalized or structured. Exactly, exactly. And it's just, it's really basic stuff. And the thing is, there are some really fantastic, tons of fantastic early childhood educators who are not formally trained. And it's just, there's just a difference. If you really understand why you're doing something, then your how becomes even better. And that's, yeah. that's the disconnect that I want to change eventually. Yeah. But my kids need to be a lot bigger before I go back to school again. <laughs> that's awesome. So through this journey, uh, any challenges that you've kind of faced or sort of, you know, things that kind of uh, stopped you and, uh, and had you had to, uh, or, or had you rethink some of this? I think one of the things is that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pendulum swinging in education, like, oh, we all do it this way, like yeah. phonics, then all the way to whole language. And I'm very gray. I'm very much, there's good parts in this, good parts in that. Let's bring them together. And um, sometimes people can get very upset if you don't do it the one way they taught it. They were taught how to do it. Right. Why aren't you doing it this way? Why? And for someone like me who really does see the gray, that can take up a lot of time. Because like right now, teaching pre-K this year and next year, I'm really starting to focus on making sure if my students are ready to allow them and to help them learn to write words formally like write right. letters and handwriting formation, believe it or not, it's a very hot topic in early childhood. There's these people and those people and how the, you know, the class did it before I got here. And so I think one of the challenges for me is just really, I'm very introspective and trying to decide exactly how I'm going to do something can sometimes trip me up completely. Yeah. Like, no, I want to do it this way, but what does the school system do? And, but that doesn't fit with my educational philosophy. Students shouldn't be doing that weird way. And it's where you want to take a stand versus practically how you want to teach your students. And right. 
So it's, it's theory versus practice. Sometimes I end up on phone calls with different friends that are also, you know, uh, professionals and what do you do? So it seems kind of ridiculous, but it really matters to me. Yeah. You know, I, I guess it, what you're really pointing at is, 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 is there are multiple systems and people have different views and, and these are the professionals, right? And, and so, you know, they've got certain ways of it and you're just spending your time and energy kind of defending or trying to get them on side. Um, right, and I see gray so much that I'm like, maybe they're right, maybe I'm wrong. I need right, to really- right, right. But you know, um, I've seen, and maybe it's just um, in some places that I look, but I've also seen like more parents starting to get involved and feel like they know better do you, I mean, do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> you know, I Google all my health systems, like symptoms before I go to the doctor and I don't have an MD, nowhere near it. Right, that's right, the Google doctors, yeah, Google teachers. So I try and, I'm very calm on the outside with people and I'm not so calm in my head. So I try and think about it this way, which is I love their child. They love their child as much as I love my children. And that's a lot. So they want the best for their kids. So this is why they think that way. And I really try and just show them the difference instead of necessarily fighting it. Yeah. I can have off days too. I mean, yeah. my, my parents at my school, um, this is an issue, but definitely with blog readers when they're like, actually, this is the way it is. I'm like, do you know what? I hear what you're saying. This, that, and the other. Here's my viewpoint of it. Right. I definitely get that with um, not so much with specific things. I mean, there are some things, oh, they shouldn't be doing that until then. And if they want this, the big one is the whole idea that reading will just happen. And yeah. that that's a pretty big um, myth in the homeschooling community that I've had to go up against. And because I have obviously for my website, I have a lot of homeschoolers who read my website and I love that. I, I created it for them, but it is a myth because they don't have the background to understand that developmental doesn't mean it just happens. Right. That's not what developmental means. Yeah. So that one, I would say I end up screaming and closing my laptop and my kids will be like, what, what happened? <laughs> Well, you're um, passionate about it, so it makes sense. Yes, and then I take a deep breath and I try and think, okay, how can we do this? And things like, I have a blog post called How to Teach a Three-Year-Old to Write. And that is a, I, it's unapologetically a clickbait type. Right. Three-year-old shouldn't be writing. And so then the post is all about playing with Legos and playing with Play-Doh. And I get um, occupational therapists all the time saying, I was coming here ready to scream at you when I saw the title. That I know I wrote it because people were obviously as a blogger I can see what people are searching for and getting to my site that's right and so I had a ton of searches for how to teach a three-year-old to write and I just wanted to pull my hair out and say don't don't teach your three-year-old to write like yeah. play with your three-year-old climb trees and so I wrote that post so um I try and turn my frustration into action I would say right. that's good that's great so Ali tell me about um I asked this question to, to a lot of my audience, which is, you know, as a, as a mom, is there one feeling that you have that you would rather not? I have a 14 year old. So one, I don't know, I have a lot. 
But um, I would say the number one feeling is feeling judged. When we feel judged as parents, nothing good comes from it at all. And it's so hard not to feel judged. And I'm definitely a highly sensitive person, which makes me a fantastic teacher, but it makes me very sensitive to judgment too. And so I would say if I could not feel something, it would be judgment because then I'm not making the right choice for my kids. I'm making a choice to protect myself from that judgment instead. Right. And I have two awesome kids that are, my youngest is sassy as all get up. And I definitely feel judged when people see her sass. And I'm like, that sass is going to be who you vote for in 30 years. So just get over it now. But in the moment, I can feel that like stomach feeling and the hot prickles on my neck. And yeah, I might not always show it, but I feel it. And I wish parents didn't have to worry about that judgment because it just sucks up energy from all of us. Yeah, I'm sure lots of people will agree with you. Definitely. Uh, Allison, tell me, uh, what's your hope for parents and teachers that you're serving? Uh, my hope is that they can enjoy all of this with their kids and students, that they can enjoy the connection that reading together brings, that they can enjoy teaching. Because when they enjoy it, the students or their children will enjoy it more too. And then it just becomes something they, that path becomes full of good things about school and good things about reading. And they're not carrying around heavy burdens instead. Yeah, it's like make, make, make sure that you're having fun while you're doing it and you're just gonna be a lot more in, involved in it. Yes, and we wanna do things that are fun. Yeah. And we wanna do them again. And reading especially, it takes practice. So whatever level they're at in literacy, if they want to do it, they're going to do it a lot more and that's going to help them the next step. Right. Yeah. All excellent, excellent points. Well, thank you, Ali. Um, we're kind of out of time over here, but I really appreciate you being, uh, being here. It was great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. We would really appreciate if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us any feedback to reachingroots at wishslate.com. Also, download the Wishslate app to help organize wish lists for your family and change the way you gift. You can download this from www.wishslate.com slash download.